Not many people ever had the chance to call comedian George Burns and say, Hello, George. Hello, who's this? This is Bob Smith. Okay, Bob. Very much enjoyed your, your last film here, Going in Style. I did. I was one of the lucky ones. I met him in person, too. I don't know whether you saw the Sunshine Boys. And yes, Neil sir. Simon said, certain things are funny. You know, pickles are funny. It's a funny Cucumbers is a funny word. Uh, 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 Peoria is funny. Dubuque is funny. You know, there are certain things that are funny. Schenectady. Schenectady is very funny. Oh, God. <laughs> it's real funny. Coming up today, you're going to hear all of that as we celebrate the late, great comedian George Burns on The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. Welcome to The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith, a chance to take a break, exit the fast lane, steer clear of crazy, and relax and enjoy life. I told you in the first episode of The Off-Ramp that in the coming weeks and months I'd be sharing the voices of famous entertainers I had the pleasure to meet in my late 20s in my radio career. One of those folks was a gentleman I had several encounters with. Here's a trivia question about him. Who's the first known comedian to live to be 100? The first known comedian to live to be 100. His name? George Burns. We met once via telephone and two other times face-to-face. George Burns was one of America's most famous comedians. Eventually, he became the first entertainer to turn his old age into a gold mine. The man who was still performing well into his 90s with an act that poked fun at, well, what it was like to be old. (laughs) And the world loved it. Here's a great quote of his. If you live to the age of 100, you have it made, because very few people die past the age of 100. He was a pioneer of stand-up comedy and a star of vaudeville, movies, radio, television, even music videos. In the spring of 1980, at age 84, George Burns had become the oldest person ever to have a hit record on the national charts. I wish I was 18 again. Success had never been a stranger to George Burns. By the age of seven, he was already in show business, a member of a paid group called the Pee Wee Quartet in New York. And then by his late 20s, he and his wife and partner Gracie Allen were touring Europe and America as a vaudeville act, a top one at that, earning an income in six figures. In the 1930s, they went into radio and the movies. In the 1950s, a top television act. Gracie died in 1964, but George went on to win an Oscar in The Sunshine Boys in 1975. Then he played none other than The Lord in the hit comedy movie Oh God in 1977. When I met him in 1980, he was touring doing a live stand-up comedy act that lasted more than an hour. When I asked him where his script was, he pointed to his head. And he said, it's in my nut. He had it memorized. Amazing. He was 84 the day he sat down in Los Angeles to talk by phone with two radio hosts in Dubuque, Iowa, about a charity appearance he'd be making for a local hospital. Little did I know that a few weeks later, I'd find myself in a limousine with him, smoking cigars and talking about life. But I'll tell you about that encounter in a future episode. 
As you'll see, his mind was still as sharp as a tack, and he often interrupted interviewers with the answers before they were done with the questions. Hello, George. Hello, who's this? This is Bob Smith. Okay, Bob. Very much enjoyed your, your last film here, Going in Style. Good, good movie, huh? Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, I, I thought so, too. <laughs> yeah. uh, you were born Nathan Birnbaum. Yeah. Now, I wondered who changed that name to George Burns. Where well, did that come I, from? When I was about seven years old, I came from a very, very poor family. In fact, my family were poorer than uh, the coal mine's daughter. What's her name? Uh, Loretta Lynn? Yeah, Loretta Lynn. That's how poor we were. <laughs> we used to send them food packages. <laughs> anyway, we were very poor. And then they, there was the uh, the Burns Brothers, coal people, were on the east side. And every time they'd pass our neighborhood, I'd open the chute and the coal would drop into the street. And there was another kid and myself. His name was Kaplan. And we used to pick up the coal, and we wore, we wore knickers, and we'd pull our knickers full of coal. And when we'd walk down the street, the people would say, here come the Burns Brothers. <laughs> and that name stuck to me. So I've been using the name of Burns since I've been seven years old. Now, yeah, it's a true story. I had all kinds of names. You see, when I first started in Baltimore, I started to sing with the Pee Wee Quartet when I was seven. I was selling coal and singing with the Pee Wee Quartet when I was seven years old. I made more money with the cold than I did with the singing. And uh, I've been in, uh, singing on saloons and saloons and on street corners and ferry boats. And uh, then I started, I went into vaudeville. And my first name was Williams. I did an act called Brown Williams. I did a roller skating act. And then I kept changing my name because I was pretty bad. <laughs> and I had to change my name practically every, every week or every month because I couldn't get a job with the same name. I was what they call a disappointment act. <laughs> that, that's an act that, that, that sits in an office with their grip packed. And in case some actor got sick, I would take his place. The only time I worked up, there was a flu epidemic. <laughs> I've heard that uh, uh, your dear wife, Gracie, hooked up with you by accident, that she was actually told to team up with your former partner, Billy Lorraine. Yeah, well, that's not true. Oh, it isn't. I wrote that, but I lie a lot. <laughs> So she knew who you were when she teamed up with you? Well, yeah, well, she came backstage to, uh, to meet a girlfriend of ours. Rena Arnold was her name. And Billy Lorraine and I were going to split up that week. We only had three more days booked. And she went out front and saw the act, and she kind of liked me. And two weeks later, we worked together. We were married for 38 years, and, and we were together two years before that. So for 40 years, we worked together. We, we worked longer than that. <laughs> Originally, uh, you were the funny man, and uh, Gracie played the... When I, when I first started, yeah, when, for one performance only. Because it was my act, I wrote it. So I made myself the comedian. And Gracie asked the questions, and everybody laughed at the questions, and nobody laughed at the answers. So um, I changed it immediately. When you were in vaudeville, you recorded to sing, uh, if, uh, if you ask a vaudevillian how he was doing, and he said 17 minutes, it meant he was a top act. Just uh, how many minutes did you and Gracie get? We did 17 minutes. Is that right? Yeah. No, the idea was, you see, if you did 17 minutes, that meant you had a good spot on the bill. So, um, and when you did do it, when you did 17 minutes, you'd walk on the side of the street where the palace was, so that you're hoping that somebody would say, how are you doing at the Fifth Avenue Theater? <laughs> you'd never say, I'm doing good, or, you know, I'm a hit. You'd, always, you'd, you'd mention the, the, the time of your act. They'd say, how are you doing? You'd say, 17 minutes. You were a big in vaudeville, but you were even bigger in radio, and you got your start with the Eddie Cantor Show. 
playing the Palace Theater, and he asked he asked me if I would allow Gracie to go on the show for him, do five minutes on the Chase and Sanborn show. So I told Eddie Cantor, I said, she can go on your show if you let, you let Gracie do her own material. He said, sure, but I want to do straight. What do I say? I said, you, how long do you want Gracie to be on? He says, five minutes. I said, you say to Gracie, how is your brother? She'll talk for five minutes. <laughs> so that's what happened. And from then on, we were on radio. The next week, we did the Ruby Valley show. And then we did, uh, then we worked with Guy Lombardo. And we stayed with him. And then finally, Guy Lombardo left the show. And we took that show over. We were in the radio business. The Burns and Allen radio show was one of broadcasting's first situation comedies. Starting in the 40s, George began putting he and Gracie in strange, unusual, and hilarious circumstances. It became one of the most popular shows on network radio, and for good reason. The writing was excellent. The show explored the supposedly screwball relationship that George and Gracie had, one in which, like their show business relationship, Gracie was the real star. Mrs. Burns, since you're so happily married... Perhaps you have some advice to pass along to young girls in the matter of choosing the right husband. Yes, I have. When I was very young, I made up my mind that I would find the perfect man. Man with personality, looks, brains, talent, and charm. I searched for three years before I finally married George Burns. Then your advice to young girls would be... Do just what I did. Give up the hopeless search and marry the man you love. Isn't it difficult to maintain a career and a home at the same time? I mean, isn't it drudgery to come home from the studio and have to cook dinner? Miss Ettinger, if you were cooking for the one you love, would you call it drudgery? <laughs> no, I guess I wouldn't. Well, neither does George. <laughs> oh, George, George! Um, dear... Would you say that we're happily married? Of course we are. We've been happily married for 11 years. Oh, 11 years. Our marriage has been successful because we realize that married people have to give up certain things. Remember how I asked you to give up betting on the races? Yeah, and I gave it up. You certainly did. And remember how you asked me to stop buying so many hats? Yep. You gave that up, too. <laughs> I certainly did. Yes, I, you're a wonderful husband, George. Do you love me as much as I love you? Of course I do. Well, I'd like to hear you say, darling, I love you. Okay, darling, well, I... Well, likes to hear those things, you know. All right. Darling, she can't I... just take them for granted. <laughs> okay. I Dar... want to hear you say that you love me. <laughs> darling... Just four little words. Darling... But it means so much to us, women. <laughs> Darling... <laughs> Gracie. Yes? Darling, I love you. Oh, uh, now, you see, that wasn't hard, was it? <laughs> Say it again. Darling, Who I... likes to hear those things, you know? I'll try it again tomorrow. Here's a Burns and Allen radio skit that's a gem of writing. It's about income taxes. Now, let's see. Figuring our income on the basis of the community property law... That would make... What a, law, George? The community property law. That's the California law that says half of everything I've got is yours and half of everything you've got is mine. Oh? Then how come I only get one-fourth of the money we make? Well, that's the way it works out, dear. Look, I'll show you. 
Here in my hand is a dollar and change. Well. Now, half of everything I've got is yours. So here's 50 cents. Ah, oh, thank you. Now, half of everything you've got is mine. How much have you got? 50 cents. Half of it is mine. Hand it over. <laughs> there. See how it works? I see who it works. <laughs> now, let's try that again, and this time I'll start with a dollar. Okay. Now, half of everything I've got is yours, so here's 50 cents. Thank you. And ha uh, how does the second part go? Half of everything you've got is mine. How much have you got? 50 cents. Half of it is mine. Hand it over. <laughs> Here. Thanks. Well, you were right, George. It comes out the same way no matter how you do it. <laughs> the talent on the Burns and Allen radio show was top-notch. George Burns hired top band leaders like Tony Martin, Artie Shaw, Paul Whiteman, who commissioned George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue in the 20s, and Meredith Wilson, who went on to write The Music Man. Comedy writers like Hal Goldman and Seaman Jacobs were equally talented, going on to write for Andy Griffith, Carol Burnett, All in the Family, The Smothers Brothers, and Different Strokes in the TV era. Burns and Allen began their radio career as guest stars on the Eddie Cantor, Guy Lombardo, and Rudy Valley radio shows, so it's no surprise that guest stars were a regular feature on theirs. Here's Ronald Reagan as a guest on Burns and Allen 34 years before he became President of the United States. At the time, he was a romantic leading man in Hollywood. You're Gracie Allen, aren't you? That's right. And look who's behind the chair. It's George. <laughs> what? Oh, uh, no, this is my friend Blanche Morton. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. Please forgive me, Blanche. Uh, is it all right if I call you Blanche? Yeah, I like it better than George. Uh, please sit down, ladies. Now, to what do I owe the pleasure of this visit? Oh, well, we want to find out all about your life, Mr. Reagan. You see, George is going to make a speech at your dinner. Yes, uh, so I've been warned. Uh, told. Well, now, tell me all about yourself, and I'll make notes for George. Very well. I'll start by telling you where I came from. I was raised on a farm in Illinois. Well, that certainly beats California. All they can raise out here is vegetables. <laughs> I meant that my father had a farm and I grew up on it. Oh! I went to a country school. This'll sound corny, but I actually had to walk four miles to the schoolhouse. You poor boy. Did you go to college? Yes, I went to college on a scholarship. That certainly beat walking, didn't it? <laughs> yes. Well, tell me more about the farm. Did you raise any silos? One of the biggest in Illinois, until a cyclone came along. I remember one summer we had three cyclones. Really? Yeah, but we had a good cyclone seller. Oh, he must have been good if he sold you three cyclones. <laughs> well, so much for your boyhood days. Now, I want to know all about you now. How old are you? You mean before we started this interview or now? <laughs> I've aged considerably. Well, uh, how old are you now? A and tell the truth, Mr. Reagan. I think it's silly for people to lie about their age. Well, uh, I'd say I'm about your age. Oh, and out of college already? <laughs> yes. Now, tell me some exciting things that have happened to you. Well, I've had a few narrow escapes hunting. See the bearskin rug in front of the fireplace? Yes. Well, that bear charged me. How much? 
He attacked me. If I hadn't gotten him, he'd have gotten me. Oh, well, I'm awfully glad it was him. He makes a much better rug. Thanks. Now, is, uh, is that the most nerve-wracking experience you've ever had? Let's say it was the second most nerve-wracking. When was the first? It isn't over yet. Coming up next, George Burns talks about his pioneering TV show and his best friend, comedian Jack Benny. We return now to The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. When you talk to a great show business figure like George Burns, the names of other top entertainers come to mind. We ask him about two men he worked with at one time or another, musician Tony Martin and W.C. Fields. I gave Tony Martin a start on one of our radio shows. Tony Martin used to be with a, he was a saxophone player. And he played with a little combination in Oakland, California. I heard him sing. And I put him on the radio show. But the, and he sang Begin the Begin. But Tony Martin, uh, uh, so used to singing and with the sax around his neck and playing with the, with the little buttons on the sax that he couldn't sing unless he had a saxophone around his neck. <laughs> so I finally took the saxophone off his neck. He sang Begin the Begin and played with his buttons. When he got to the second chorus, he lost his pants. <laughs> Since George went way back, we ask him about W.C. Fields. Well, he was a great, uh, he loved gin. <laughs> he was a good gin. He was a great comedian, you know. I mean, what can you say about Fields? He was a fun, great comedian, a great star. And a and, uh, thing that happened once, uh, we were, we were, uh, he was doing a scene with Gracie. I was sitting at a dinner at a, a, a table uh, in a lunch in a restaurant. And uh, Gracie hit him with a line and walked away from the table. Peggy Hopkins Joyce sitting at the table, Gracie and W.C. Fields. And she hit him with a line and left for the ladies' room or something. And Fields felt he should have something to say. He felt like he had egg, egg on his face, you know, and didn't know what to do. And, um, and uh, Leo McCary was the director. He said, look, when Gracie leaves, I need something. I got to say something. Can you think of something? And they were struggling. So I went over to him. I says, look, you know, I worked at Gracie all my life. I says, look, Bill, I said, you've got a, 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 a glass of scotch on the table, and you've got a glass of water, and you've got a cup of coffee. Why don't you take two pieces of sugar, put it in the water, mix the coffee, and drink the scotch, and take your napkin and wipe Peggy Hopkins' choice up the face with it. And he loved it, and from then on, he liked me. <laughs> Before that, he hated me. After that, he gave me a drink of gin. From uh, some of the books I've been reading, yours and, and uh, the one that Irving uh, wrote about uh, Jack Benny, I understand you've been a practical joker most of your life. Do you still find yourself doing those things? Oh, no, no. You, you, you know, I'd, uh, I talk and the uh, 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 spot comes up where you say a funny line, I say it. And if somebody, has a, somebody else has a funny line, I steal it <laughs> and then say it, you know. But with Jack Benny and myself, I wasn't a practical, it wasn't practical jokes. You couldn't plan to make Jack Benny laugh. It had to be spontaneous. There were little simple things. Like, for instance, um, I met Jack at the club, and he said, I didn't sleep last night. I said, how did you sleep the night before? He says, great. I said, well, sleep every other night. <laughs> you know, those are the things that would break him up. I understand there was a, an incident, I believe it was at Chasen's Restaurant. Yeah, well, I made him pay the, he, he paid the bill. You see, Jack Benny used to uh, he, he planned things that never worked out. We were in Jason's restaurant, and he says, George, I got an idea to make Jason pay, pay the check. I said, what's the idea? He says, we'll have a very expensive meal, and then we'll have a fight. 
when the check comes. And I'll call over Jason and say, if uh, George pays the George Prince pays the check, I'm, 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 I'm never I'm never going to come in here again. And you say, if Jack Benny pays the check, I'm never going to come in here again. And we're both very good customers, and Jason will say, never mind, boys, I'll take the check. So we had this expensive dinner. When the check came, Jack called over Jason, and he said, if you give George Burns the check, I'm, I'm never coming in here again. And I never said anything. I just sat there. So they gave Jack Benny the check. <laughs> but he brought it up. That's what made it funny. You've had a comic technique for years of breaking character and, and talking directly to the audience with the rest of the actors in the skit not talking to the audience. When did you start that? When we went into television. We were in radio for 19 years and then on television for eight years. When we went into television, I thought of that gimmick. It wasn't an original gimmick. It was done in a show, a Broadway show. Uh -huh. So I stole it. <laughs> you, you got into movies about the same time as radio, I guess, with Paramount in the early 30s, and here, uh, uh, about 50 years later, you're doing movies again. Uh, do you find there's a lot of difference for you as an actor in the way movies are made? Oh, yeah. Yeah, my movies are entirely different today. Everybody, when I went in the movies, everybody looked like Dolores Del Rio. Everybody had um, big red lips, a lot of makeup, you know. And, but they don't do that anymore. It's very natural today, you know. Uh, they don't like the stage as bright as they did. And it's a, there's a natural feeling today to, to the actors. Uh, the other, uh, at the other time, everybody felt that they were in pictures, they were in movies. Today, it's not that feeling. It's a natural feeling. We were talking with uh, Fred Waring, who was in town recently, and he was talking about those early days on the sound stages, saying that the Klieg lights were so hot, people were passing out and, and almost oh, going blind. Oh, your, head, your head would melt. You know, and if you wore a toupee, you couldn't keep it on. The lights were so hot. Mine kept falling off all the time. <laughs> Don't tell any. But if you, if you need any hair, let me know. <laughs> I got three trunks full. What about Oh God's sequel? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I come down looking for John Denver, and I can't find him. And I meet a little girl. Her name is Luann. And she's an 11-year-old girl and a great little actress. And uh, God and this little girl get to be great friends. And it's a very, very good movie. And it's the same kind of a God that you had in the last picture. Is, it, is John Denver in that uh, film, George? No, 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 no. I come down. God, uh, God, uh, God looks down. At the, the, he says, the country's in a mess. I think I'll go down there and try to straighten it out. As he comes down, he says, well, as long as I'm here, I'll say hello to John Denver. I don't call him John Denver, you know. Uh -huh. And uh, while I'm looking for John, while I'm, I'm ready to say hello to John Denver, I meet this little girl. And uh, the, 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 this little girl is very, very good. And she, she did the lead in, in Annie. She's awfully good. Uh, you, uh, you recently had your hit record. Uh, and, uh, I wish I was 18 again. Right. Uh, what, was your, what was your reaction to that becoming uh, one of the top ten songs? Well, it's a, it's a big hit. And so is my album. I'm now a country singer. <laughs> I became a country singer at 84. We asked George if he could remember performing in Iowa back in the 20s. All I know is I played three days and got paid. <laughs> and so I don't all, know which act I did that. That's all that's important, I guess. Of course. When you, right now, I'm a dramatic actor. When I go on the stage, I get paid. If I cry, they pay me for crying. They don't pay me while I'm crying. Then I really cry. <laughs> In your career, what, what's given you the most pleasure? You've done vaudeville, radio, movies, the TV? The last thing I do. The last thing you do? The last thing I do. I love show business, but I, I, I would not never stop. I mean, well, what would I do? I mean, I don't think anybody should retire. I think it's, it's going to be a great show. I, it's a show that, uh, it's a collection of things I've done all my life, 
I got some great songs. I got some great uh, anecdotes, and, and I think the audience will enjoy it very much. So that was my phone call with George Burns. One month later, I met him in person. At the airport, several hundred unsuspecting people looked on, then did a vaudevillian double-take as they saw the old man coming into the terminal from the commercial jetliner. Slowly, they gathered around him, politely asking for autographs and shaking hands. George Burns had arrived. Hiya, good, nice to see you. A few minutes later, I slipped into the back seat of a Lincoln Continental beside him. And there he was, George Burns. Funny, though, he sounded like George Burns, and he was smoking a cigar like George Burns, but he really didn't look like George Burns. In his civilian clothes, a light jacket and a fishing hat, he just looked like somebody's grandfather. I had to pinch myself to remember who he was and why I was there, to get something on tape that I could play on the air as soon as we got into town to promote the show. So, I quickly got down to business, asking him why old vaudeville comedians used to love poking fun at the names of cities and towns where they performed. They had fun with the, the town. Certain names were funny, you know, like, uh, the, I don't know whether you saw the Sunshine Boys. And yes, Neil sir. Simon said, certain things are funny, you know, pickles are funny. It's a funny, cucumbers is a funny word. Uh, 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 Peoria is funny. Dubuque is funny. You know, there are certain things that are funny. Schenectady. Schenectady is very funny. Oh, God. <laughs> it's real funny. Soon we were barreling down the highway, starting our 75-mile journey. I'm telling you this because you'll hear some pretty strong road noise in the next several recordings. I asked George Burns about the last time he performed in Iowa 50 years earlier in the 1920s. Did Burns and Allen do their famous act called Lamb Chops or another one called 6040? It's very hard to remember, you know. They were, and the most important thing is those days was where, where, where would you eat, you know. Where would, they had boarding houses, you know, restaurants, but mostly boarding houses. And you'd, you'd, um, you played three, three and four days in Dubuque. It was not a full week. You played Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then a new show would come in Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And you did three shows a day. And a business uh, called for it. You do four shows Saturday and Sunday. You did roller skating acts with Pee Wee Quartet and all of that. Yeah, did you do comedy all along? No, it's uh, singing and dancing. And I worked with a, a skating act and I worked with a banana. I worked with a seal, you know. You worked with a seal? Yeah, I did a seal. I worked with a seal. I did everything in show business. I did anything they asked me to do. I asked him about that roller skating act. How did that work? And like a magician revealing how to take a coin out of his sleeve, he told me how it was done. The name of the act was Brown and Williams, singers, dancers, and roller skaters. And we danced. We did buck dancing. You know what buck dancing is? Like Irish dancing, you know, tapping. A lot of taps. You know, buck dancing. You ever hear of it? I think yeah. so, yeah. yeah. Well, we used to buck dance on skates. And the way you used to do that, you were able to do that. You see, you'd, uh, a skate has... Uh, has um, four wheels on each skate. The back wheels didn't turn. You skate out on the front wheels. Oh, okay. And the back wheels didn't turn at all. So when you get down on your whole foot, you know, on the heels of you, of the skate, you'd have perfect balance, you could dance. Oh, so See, you... that when you might have to skate off, you'd skate on your front wheels. 
but now I can tell you that because I'm not doing the skating act anymore. <laughs> but I'm ruining, I'm, I'm ruining it for everybody that's going to do a skating act. Again, my apologies for some of the road noise in these recordings. A little later, George Burns launched into a story about his wife Gracie's youth as an Irish dancer with her sisters in San Francisco. A lot of population, a lot of Irish. So Gracie's family, every time an Irishman would teach him a step, let's say the, the guy that taught him a step, his name was Donovan. Well, they'd call the step Donovan. Then Kelly would teach him a step. They'd call that Kelly. Then when they went to a contest or something, they'd say, we'll do two Donovans, then we'll do one Kelly, then we'll do a Ferguson, we'll do a Fitzpatrick. And the people on the, on the, on the, 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 the streetcar in San Francisco, you know, the little, uh, the, the, what do you call the car? No, the car that goes up and down the hills. The cable cars. They thought the girls were crazy. They never heard that kind of job, you know. After a good bit of conversation, George Burns turned to me and said, I think you've got enough of me. At which point I agreed and unplugged my handheld microphone. Then I made a decision I've never regretted. I let the recorder keep running. With the internal microphone on the machine, capturing our continued conversation. A conversation which ranged from show business to banking to sports to food. None of that has ever been heard outside of my family. But I'll be playing portions of it in an upcoming episode of The Off-Ramp. A few hours after our ride, I was proud to ask the first question at George Burns' press conference. I read in your book that you were, thought you were a failure until you were 27. Why is that? Well, I wasn't a failure. I didn't get it. I didn't have any job, but that didn't. But I was in love with what I was doing. I wasn't doing very well, but I loved doing nothing. In other words, I would rather, rather have been a failure in show business than a success making felt hats. I don't think I would like making felt hats. I, I love the business I was in. I, I didn't know I was, I wasn't doing well. One vaudeville comic George Burns was asked about was Joe Frisco, a stuttering comedian who hailed originally from the city of Dubuque. And Burns knew him. Oh, yeah. But when Gracie and I were playing the Palace Theatre, Joe Frisco told me a wonderful joke. It took him about 30 minutes to tell this joke because he stuttered, you know, he stammered. Although I worked with a kid that stammered, Billy Lorraine. And people that stutter, when they sing, they don't stutter. And when I was working with Billy Lorraine, somebody broke into our, our trunk up in the hotel room. And Billy came down to the hotel. He was all excited. He stuttered and he stammered and stammered. And I said, Billy, sing it. He sang, we were just robbed. <laughs> <laughs> and um, anyway, Joe Frisco. So he gave us a great joke. And the joke was, we were then what they call a standard man or woman. We were getting about $400 a week, which was a lot of money, though. And uh, a standard man or woman act is an act that plays big-time theaters, but they don't get top billing. They, uh, they're a good act, standard, you know, good, solid. And Joe Frisco gave us a joke about a bird that flies backwards. It's not interested in where it's going. It's interested in where it's been, which is a very old joke, but it wasn't then. I'm going back. 50, 60 years. Anyway, I thought it was a great joke. So Gracie and I did it at the palace because we did a, a bird routine. And it was, got a big laugh. And we got a call from Fred Allen. And he said that that joke that you're doing about the bird flying backwards belongs to me. Take it out of your eye. 
Well, we couldn't take it out of our act because we did it at the palace, and the palace was the life's blood of every actor. So I offered him $50 for the joke, for the one joke. I offered him $100 for the joke. I finally offered him $250 for that joke, and he wouldn't sell it. So I called up a writer, his name was John P. Medbury, he wrote in California, great writer. And I told him I had a problem. I, I, says, I told him the whole story and I said, the bird flies backwards. It's not interested in where it's going, it's interested in where it's been. And um, John Medbury said, have the bird fly upside down in case a hunter shoots and he falls up. <laughs> so I did it and sold it to Fred Allen for $250. <laughs> We'll return with more of George Burns on the off-ramp with Bob Smith after this. Welcome back to the off-ramp with Bob Smith. We continue now with my encounters with George Burns. At the press conference, George Burns was asked about some of the talents he hadn't worked with in his career. Well, I haven't worked with all of them. I'd like to work with Marisha Valia. Is he still around? <laughs> I've never worked with Marisha. I worked... I never worked with Jolson. I never, I worked with Eddie Cantor. There's a lot of stars I haven't worked with because there were people that were great stars that were in shows. Gracie and I were never in shows, you know. There was Sam Bernard and Louis Mann and Cliff Gordon, people that you don't even know, you know, they were all great stuff. But we were never in shows. We were vaudeville, we were vaudevillians, you know. And now I'm an actor. I'm a dramatic actor, I can make, I make people cry. You pay me, I'll make you cry. <laughs> if I make you cry and you don't pay me, then I'll cry. <laughs> there were a lot of acts that didn't make the transition from vaudeville to radio. Primarily visual acts, like jugglers, acrobats, and animal acts. But George and Gracie had no problem. It was very easy for Gracie and myself. When we were in, in, in vaudeville, we talked. And then radio came in, and we talked. And then television came in, and we talked. And I'm still talking, so we had no problem. I'll tell you we had a problem on radio. It was Powers Elephants, Swain's Cats and Rats, Fink's Mules. You couldn't see them, so they couldn't get a job. But on radio, you know, you talk, and you work. That Burns and Allen successfully made the transition from vaudeville to radio, radio to movies, and movies to TV is history. And along the way, George had fun with each medium that he used. In their first film short, George had Gracie looking for the invisible audience until he pointed out the camera to her. In radio, he had his sound effects man become a regular character, complaining about ringing the bells, opening and closing the doors, and making the footsteps. In TV, he was the only character who talked directly to the audience, and he eavesdropped on Gracie with the family's own living room TV set. He even stopped one scene in the TV show to explain to the audience that the man they'd been used to seeing playing his next-door neighbor had quit the show for more money. Yeah, I told the audience. We're in the middle of a scene, and, and, and I said to the audience, Fred Clark wanted $1,500 a week, and I offered him $1,250. I said, if I gave him $1,500 a week, he'd be making more money than I'm making. <laughs> so we got another actor to take his place and that I'm only paying $750 a week. And he's going to play Mr. Morton, and I want you to meet him. 
I had the audience meet him and the show went on and I never got one letter. <laughs> Everybody agreed with me. They said you did the right thing. See, you're honest. Turned out to be President of the United States. The first 50 TV shows in the Burns and Allen series were done live, and George Burns was asked if he had any problem with bloopers. Well, we had bloopers, but um, no, the sponsor wouldn't get upset. The sponsors get upset if your rating is bad. If you've got bloopers and a bad rating, you can't get your job. You're fired. And if you haven't got any bloopers and you've got a bad rating, you're fired too. The most important thing is your rating. If you got ra- if you got a good rating, you can have bloopers. We had a lot of bloopers, and not only that. When we were in television, everybody had a good rating because everybody was in the top ten because there are only eight acts. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you something. I lie a lot. <laughs> in the mid '70s, George Burns made his triumphal comeback playing in the Sunshine Boys with Walter Matthau, a show he won an Oscar for for Best Supporting Actor. He was asked how his comeback came about. Well, let me say this. Gracie and I made a lot of movies, but we always played Burns and Allen. We never played characters. My comeback, I was never an actor until I had open heart surgery. <laughs> After I had open heart surgery, I did the Sunshine Boys. So my idea, if you want to be a very good actor, have open heart surgery. <laughs> <laughs> now how that happened was, I was um, 79 years old at the time. And uh, Jack Benny was supposed to do the Sunshine Boys, you know. And he died, and I was handled by Irving Fine, who also handled Jack Benny, and they asked me to read for uh, Doc Simon, Neil Simon, and Herb Ross, the director. And it was a very easy part for me to play because it was written for me. The part called for somebody old, and I was. (laughs) They called for somebody Jewish, and I am. They called for somebody that was born in New York City, and I was, so that was it. And I had a marvelous time working with that, um, Walter Matthau and Dick Benjamin and Herb Ross, a great director, and Neil Simon, who writes great words, and to get paid for doing his reading, doing his words. George Burns' biggest success prior to the press conference was the motion picture, Oh God, and he gave credit to his much younger co-star, singer John Denver. The reason that uh, Oh God was a good movie and it had a lot of impact was because of John Denver. Because I think if God really came down and looked for a good man, he'd have picked Denver. I don't think the picture would have worked if I came down and found Milton Berle. (laughs) (laughs) I think that the young people today, if anybody is in love with show business, you can't keep them out. There's a lot of great young talent. For instance, the fellow that wrote Going in Style, 27 years old, Martin Brest, he not only directed it, but, but he wrote it. All these kids today, that, uh, that uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Arts Club band, the, the Bee Gees, and Peter Frampton, they make millions of dollars. Kids not only make the records today, they, they own the record company, they write the words, they write the music, they do it all. You would have thought George Burns was young, much younger anyway, when you heard about all the things he'd done and was going to do. I've got um, another Oh God coming out, October the 3rd, Oh God, book two, and then I've got my album coming out. And I did uh, with Art Connie and Lee Strasberg, Going in Style, I finished that. And now I'm gonna do another movie for Warner Brothers called um, Enough to Go Around, 
And then I'm going to play uh, Saturday. I'm playing in in Chicago with uh, with uh, Kenny Rogers. And then I'm going to play with. Um, I'm doing six days with um, John Denver. And then I'm going to in the summer. I'm playing four weeks of of, of the round theaters in the round. I'm busy. Burns was long known as a man who never finished a song on stage. But recently, he'd completed a whole album full of songs. Well, I'll tell you why I didn't finish any songs in Broadway. I used to sing very fast songs. And, I, and by the time the audience found out that they hated me, I was out of town. <laughs> but then they asked me to come to Nashville and to do a, do a country album. And they, and they paid me. So I went. And uh, it was a great experience. And I found out that country singing is, well, you can't miss really. There were 32 violins, there were six guitars, piano, bass, and drums, and eight backup singers. With all that help, they didn't need me. They could have used Kenny Rogers. (laughs) Burns was asked about his off-screen life. How about all those Hollywood nights? I've never been to a wild Hollywood party. I've never been to, I've been to crazy parties but never a wild Hollywood where people take their clothes off. I wouldn't take my clothes off in any party. I'd look bad naked with makeup on. (laughs) Burns was asked about two of his favorite subjects, cigars and women. I smoke an El Producto cigar, and the reason that I smoke it is that it fits my holdup. And I work with a cigar on the stage and on television, and I think it's... um, if you're going to work with a cigar, I don't think it's nice to have people see the wet ends. So I might not be good on the stage, but I'm neat. <laughs> and um, my advice to anybody that's my age, when I was 18, I went out with, with young girls. I liked them then. Why shouldn't I like them now? And that goes for women, too, you know. Uh, I Look, all I do is... If I can get a girl to put my cigar into my holder, it's exciting. (laughs) I like to get out of bed at my age. I think it's terribly important not to stay in bed. And um, I can't make any money in bed. (laughs) And and I'm going to be in show business as long as I'm alive. I love it. I think it's a great business. I think everybody ought to be in show business. George Burns' most recent Hollywood success was the hit record, I Wish I Was 18 Again. And the question that night, did he really wish that? 18. Well, there isn't a thing I can't do now that I didn't do when I was 18. <laughs> I, was, I was pretty pathetic when I was 18. Okay. <laughs> very, very nice. Later that night, George Burns did his show. Singer-dancer Abby Lane warmed up the audience. Then George came on stage to a standing ovation. I know what you're doing, he joked. You're afraid I won't be around for the end of the show. Then he launched into an evening of delightful stories, song, and dance, and anecdotes about the famous performers he'd worked with over his career, including his best friend, Jack Benny. Benny had just died, and the memories of him were very fresh among the audience. We were at a party one night. Now he had a piece of white thread stuck on the lapel of his coat. And I said, oh, so that's what they're wearing now. Do you mind if I borrow it? And I took the piece of white thread off his lapel and I put it on my lapel. 
Now that's, that's the whole bit. And I'm sure nobody's going to steal that from me. He fell down three times. Next day, I took a piece of white thread, put it in the box, and sent it to his house with a little note on it. And I said, thanks for letting me wear this last night. <laughs> an hour later, Mary called me up. She says, that piece of white thread got here about an hour ago, and he's, Jack is still on the floor laughing. <laughs> she says, as soon as he stops laughing, I think I'm going to leave him. And then before we were married, we used to eat together every night. And eating with Jack is quite an experience. He never, he never likes what he orders. He only likes what you order. <laughs> and uh, we were in this restaurant and he had lamb chops and I had a steak. And he looked at my steak and his mouth started to water. And he said, would you, would you like a piece of my lamb chop? I said, no, then you'll want a piece of my steak. <laughs> Fell down twice. <laughs> And the next night, we're in the same restaurant. He said, your steak looked so good last night. It looks delicious. I'm going to order it tonight. I says, good, I'll have lamb chops. He looked at my lamb chops, and his mouth started to water. He said, would you like a piece of the steak? I said, no, then you'll want a piece of my lamb chop. He only fell down once because he heard that joke before. <laughs> Another night, he had roast beef, and I had chicken. He looked at my chicken. I says, hold it. I says, you like chicken? He says, yeah. I says, you take my chicken and I'll take your roast beef. He looked at my roast beef and his mouth started to water. <laughs> I didn't say anything because sometimes even a comedian's comedian gets tired of getting laughs. <laughs> then one night we were invited to Louis B. Mayer's house. He had a musical to introduce his new singing star, Jeanette McDonald. And Gracie and Mary and Jack and I went. And after dinner they had two rows of chairs around the piano. And when Jeanette McDonald got up to sing her famous uh, song, Indian Love Call, a hush fell over the room. And I leaned over to Jack and I whispered to him, I said, Jack, when this lovely lady starts to sing, it would be very rude if you were to laugh. <laughs> well, she no sooner got the first note out of her throat. His shoulders shook, he laughed, he fell down, they had to carry him out of the room. <laughs> so he not only ruined Jeanette McDonald's song, but he ruined Louis B. Mayer's musicale. See, you see, I'm not the only one that made him laugh. Jeanette McDonald used to make him laugh, too. One last story to tell you what a prince George Burns was. Fourteen years later, when he was 97 years old and I was married and had two children, my kids, Chelsea and Ben, had developed an appetite for old radio shows, and they were going to bed listening to old Jack Benny shows and Burns and Allen radio shows. And Marcia and I were talking, and I said, you know, it would be really cool if I could get an autographed picture of George Burns for the kids. So I wrote to George Burns, and I sent him recordings I did with him in 1980, and I said, I'd like to tell you about two of your biggest fans and your newest fans. And I described how they loved his radio show, and I named all the characters. And I closed by saying, It would be a very small thing for you, but a great big thing for them, if you would send them a personally autographed picture. Well, a couple of months went by, and we didn't hear anything, and I thought, well, he's, he's probably tired, he's, he's getting very old, and he doesn't need to do this publicity stuff anymore. 
maybe he doesn't do it anymore. Well, lo and behold, Marcia called me at work one day and said, George came through, and I came home, we opened the package, and there were two 8 by 10 glossies, and scrawled across them in a 97-year-old man's handwriting were personal autographs, to Chelsea, all my best, George Burns, to Benjamin, all my best, George Burns, and in this craggy handwriting that had to be authentic, nobody could make it up, there was George Burns' signature. And even though he had no reason he had to do this kind of stuff anymore, I mean, he had a career of 90 years behind him, he still did that. He did that for my kids. And to me, that was a good measure of what the man was all about. George Burns died at the age of 100, four months after hitting that milestone in 1996. It was a national news story that day. A man who brought laughter to generations of Americans is gone. George Burns died Saturday at his Beverly Hills home just weeks after his 100th birthday. He charmed audiences for more than 90 years, starting on the vaudeville circuit. George Burns has three stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, one for live performance, a second for motion pictures, and a third for television. George and his wife Gracie were pictured on a U.S. commemorative postage stamp in 2009. We'll feature audio from my limousine ride with George Burns in an upcoming episode. Well, that's it for now. Time to start up the engine and get back on the expressway of life. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time on The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.